All right. Let's have a word of prayer and straight away get into question 29. How does the Spirit apply to us the redemption purchased by Christ? You thought that we were done talking about the Spirit applying to us the redemption purchased by Christ, but you were wrong. Because now we're going to talk about the how. Uh, We kind of talked about the what and the why last week. Um, Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this holiday weekend when uh, many are able to take an extra day. Lord, we pray not only to relax and uh, recharge, but also to remember. And uh, we pray that you would be with us this morning. Uh, We undoubtedly will have fewer at, at worship. We pray that you would keep all those safe who are traveling we pray you would be with those who are ill, especially with Sean Douglas as he's recovering from an adverse reaction. And, and uh, Lord, we pray you'd be with him. Uh, we pray that you would guide our conversation and open our hearts and eyes and minds to what your word contains. I pray all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So uh, we are going to read question 29, and then I am going to, as is my custom read to you an old-timey sermon illustration. Question 29. How does the Spirit apply to us the redemption purchased by Christ? The Spirit applies to us the redemption purchased by Christ by working faith in us and by it uniting us to Christ in our effectual calling. Interesting language here. Very Baptist, very Reformed, very foreign, I think, to most church settings today, especially effectual calling. Uh, People don't talk about things being effectual uh, much anymore, but that's central to talking about the doctrine of salvation or soteriology and how we come to be God's people. A lady was one evening engaged in dispute with a gentleman. This is not about me and Aaron. This is way back. And argued so long and so violently in defense of the creatures being first in the matter of conversion to God that to her surprise, she perceived it was one o'clock in the morning. She was startled and said, well, I did not know it was so late. I see I cannot work upon you. And I am sure all you say will not convince me. So good night. Yes, said the gentleman, it is time to go to rest. Madam, I wish you a good night. I suppose, however, that when you retire, you think to spend a few minutes praying to God. Doubtless, sir, I do. Please then, madam, tell God what you have just told me. What is that, sir? Why, madam, that you began with him before he began with you. No, I will not, said she. I knew you would not, replied the gentleman, and therefore I reserve this argument for the last for I never found any person of your opinion that could address God in consistency with the language you hold out so confidently to your fellow mortals. So this obviously took place in like the lounge area of a dorm at a Christian college. Nowhere else do people stay up till 1 a.m. arguing about whether uh, God reaches out to us first or we reach out to him first. Um, and you know, this is the sort of thing the idea of effectual call and regeneration, what comes first, faith and regeneration, that we used to pull out if we didn't feel like having class. Uh, I, I had a, a friend of mine, he actually became an ABC pastor. We stole him. Uh, he's at First Baptist in Muskegon now. Uh, Andy Smith, he taught most of my New Testament undergrad classes. And at least once a year, we'd get someone to ask the question, what came first, faith or regeneration? It's like the chicken and the egg theological uh, conundrum, and he knew what we were doing, but he couldn't help himself. And he would get out the chalk, and he would start and, and talking about uh, how it must be that God first dealt with us before we dealt with him. Uh, what do you think of this gentleman's final argument? Well, all right, when you pray, go tell God what you just told me, that you began with him before he began with you. Does that settle the issue? sounds like he was just continuing the issue. <laughs> but she, she wouldn't do it, so he said, okay, therefore you're conceding, right? 
don't know. I think that there's probably a lot of people who believe one thing and talk a different way. You know, I mean, we try to hide things from God all the time. So if she wants to have dominion over her own life, saying, I'm the one who chose, so, but then doesn't say it to God, then I, I don't think that that solves it, but it's a good, it's a clever Oh, I... How, how can she say anything more after that? He could just keep pointing back to, yeah, did, you, did you say that to God? Yeah, she can also just keep believing what she said, because that's what I find a lot of people do. Like, they'll concede, okay, on a point. Oh, okay, I see what you're doing here. But they'll still keep believing. Okay, yeah, I didn't ask if she was convinced. I asked if that settles the argument in oh. your mind. Oh, not in her mind? <laughs> I don't know her. She's committed. She was up till 1 a.m., One a.m. I don't care what's going on. I just want to go to sleep. <laughs> God, you did it. I did it. Who cares? Just help me sleep. Many people don't ever consider this question, and I think that is strange because it's one that has kind of delineated out the different stripes of Protestantism and different uh, traditions within Christianity historically. That those who especially within, you know, after the Reformation, within the sort of splinter groups, those who emphasize man's choosing God kind of come together in one group, and then those who emphasize God's sovereign choice and election of man have come together under another heading, and it used to be very much a stay up till 1 a.m. and debate it kind of an issue, and somehow, as we've sort of muddled uh, down from people with convictions. Sadly, debate has kind of disappeared, but the divisiveness has stayed. Um, do you think it's an important question? Or is it just good for derailing New Testament theology classes? I think it's important because you're, you're saying whether or not you believe you have any sovereignty over your own life. So if, if God is sovereign and he chooses me, then I'm going to live a different way and believe a different way than if I'm the one who's smart enough to choose him. Okay. And then I would also keep control over all sorts of things in my life if I'm the one who is, you know, the clever person who figured it out. You're like, yeah, I think I've got yeah. how to deal in this relationship in my life under wraps. I mean, I did figure out how to uh, get my soul saved. Right. Uh -huh. Okay, yeah, so there's that. What, what about um, just simply being in line with Scripture? While you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. Uh, we're going to look at a text. This actually fits very wonderfully providentially with the text this morning uh, of Paul preaching in Philippi, uh, in which case he preaches, they hear, and then there's this little statement, and the Lord opened the heart of Lydia. In order to respond the Lord opened her heart and then she could respond her heart was closed it was locked it was dark it was deceitful and God opened it up God took the heart of stone and gave her a heart of uh, flesh the regeneration then that opening precedes faith which is also a gift from God so it is an important question uh, now why is it that people are loath especially if you just went into an average non-denominational church in America today and said, did God come out and choose you first or, or did you reach out to him first? People are loath to say that it was God who chose them, even though to me that's the most comforting thing in the world. Why is that not really in vogue? Okay. Okay. I think people also don't want to think of God not choosing some people. Oh, there's that. Definitely. Yeah, God seems unfair. Yeah. Yeah, so in a, in a kind of... He didn't choose me. Why didn't he choose this other person? Right. And it's kind of like a weird backwards... Like, it's weird that God chooses you regardless of your merit. It has nothing to do with it. But people can start thinking, oh, well, he chose me because I'm... Yeah, so our pride kind of poisons what should be just lifting up God's mercy and turns into a way to lift up the elect person, which is 
I mean, when you read what Paul, where Paul's mind goes when he's writing sacred scripture, every time he thinks about the fact that God chose him, it's always to his own filth, his scubala, his being the chief of sinners, and then he returns praise to God. It's never, well, I was one of those, you know, chosen few because I showed the most promise. Yeah, the most promise at killing God's people, uh, you know, so it, it's... So often, I think, yeah, it has to do with, in a democratic uh, society, it doesn't seem right that God would do this. And you go, well, wait a minute. What's so special about these people? What's odd is most people that I know who would fall on the other end, and this is, by the way, this is an intra-church debate. Both of these people are Christians in this illustration. Uh, This is not a salvation issue. Uh, And probably both have insight the other side needs to hear. But um, the, the person who would have the, who would put themselves on the side of, no, I reached out to God, anything short of that, and God is being unjust, have no issue with God looking down and saying, well, oh, there's a good three million people in the area of Ur of the Chaldees, but I choose that guy, that one guy. And, and not, not, he's not doing anything special. He's worshiping idols. He's just a regular guy. I choose him. I make of him a nation, Israel. They're my people, not the Amalekites, not the Moabites, not the Hivites, none of these other people, just, just Israel. They have no issue with that. But then when it comes into the people who are walking around now, uh, they, want, they would say, well, listen, everybody has, you know, essentially the power in their hands to determine uh, things from eternity past, which scripture tells us God has already determined from eternity past. It's, it's a very interesting situation. Uh, I, let's, let's open the scriptures rather than just uh, talk in kind of theoretical terms. Someone open to Romans 8, starting with verse 9. Someone else to 1 John 5. And someone else to 1 Corinthians 6. Boom. Dude, that took you no time. That's why I cut it out real quick. Because I flipped it over. Anybody have that Romans 8, 9 through 11? You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. What does that tell us about how the spirit applies the redemption purchased by Christ to us? Oh, I just asked how it answers the, the question number 29. What does it tell us about how the Spirit applies the redemption purchased by Christ to us? It dwells in us. He dwells there in us. we go. He dwells in us. That is vital, right? What else? works in us in a similar way as he raised Jesus. Right. So there's this resurrection power. It's by the spirit that Christ is raised from the dead on the third day. And by that same spirit that we are raised from spiritual death. So this is something unspeakably powerful. Uh, how about first John five twelve? I have it. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. All right, that is the kind of basic statement of Christian doctrine that sadly is probably controversial today, but to us would be an, almost a no-brainer. And then 1 Corinthians 6.17. 617. It says... But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. What do you suppose that means? He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Unites himself to the Lord in spirit. See, and that sounds like something you do. 
Mm -hmm. But remember the context of that verse. Okay, what's the context, Roger? Um, I believe Paul was addressing the um, sexual thing that was going on in Corinth. Mm -hmm. And so how does the verse uh, apply and how does the, the context shine light on that? Well, he, he was talking about how the people would be, was um, the sexual immorality and stuff going on in Corinth. So he was pointing out that you're kind of married to Christ. So you're united with him. You're mm -hmm. flesh with Christ. Right. And it's also in the context of Jesus saying the two become one flesh, affirming the, the teaching about marriage in Genesis 1. And so, if we become one with a spouse in flesh, and by joining ourselves to Christ, become one with Him in spirit, then sexual immorality becomes this kind of double uh, treason. And that's the primary teaching. But we also see something that has to do with how the spirit works in us here, which is that we're joined to Him spiritually at salvation. What kind of union is this? It's a marriage. Spiritual. It's personal, right? This is not... Uh, when we talk about merging spirit type thing, I start, my mind starts going to like everything my parents were worried about, that the, the new age was creeping into... The, the public schools in the 80s, right? Ooh, we're all going to join the global consciousness and leave our bodies and all this kind of stuff. Uh, we're not talking about that. Not joining together in a union of persons. Yeah? I would say it's, it's an always thing. So once you're... It's not like you can... The spirit leaves, then you have to get the spirit back and like call on the spirit to come back. Um, if you're married, you're married. Even if you're not near that person, you're still married. Mm. Um, so it wouldn't be something where there's less of the spirit in you, there's more of the spirit in you, in, in, in most cases, I wouldn't think. Okay. And it would require devotion, you know. In, in this context, talking about specifically sexual immorality or adultery, um, you could look at that in a spiritual sense as well, that you're committed to the spirit in the same way you'd be committed to your spouse, and that you're not going to be fooling around with other religions and okay. other gods. That's, that's a recurring theme in the Old Testament. Plus, as I recall, was it one unfortunate prophet told to marry a prostitute just to illustrate that case? Sure. Yep. Hosea. Okay, so if we go flip up to uh, chapter 12... And look at 1 Corinthians, yeah, we're in 1 Corinthians, 12.12. Uh, 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. So there's a mystical union, and it's not just you with God. If we're going to talk about marriage, it's Christ's bride is the church. And so Christ is the head, we are the body, Christ is the bridegroom, we are the bride. And if you look at verse 27, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So there's a union here that is uh, communal and spiritual. All of this can be, in a sense, traced back to the application of the redemption purchased by Christ to us by the Spirit. Somebody else look up Matthew 28, 20. Someone may know that one by heart. As you're turning, let me say this. We're all limited by being humans. How can we then be united with Christ, who's ascended, right? Someone read Matthew 28, 20. In teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus promises he's with us always, and then he kind of leaves us. 
<laughs> and then uh, some days later, the, the 10 days later, the, the spirit comes upon the church gathered in the upper room. How is it then that we're united to him and he is with us, but he's not with us? Okay, through the spirit. So the spirit is kind of a proxy for him. Okay. Mm-hmm. Then the spirit is God. But remember the uh, shield, Trinity shield. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The, the spirit, spirit is not the Father. The okay. Man, we're just gonna th- lob these things back and forth. <laughs> uh, I would suggest too, like that. I didn't come up with this. The Westminster Divines laid this out that that Christ, while his human nature is in heaven, he is indeed everywhere, being God. Christ is still omnipresent. Jesus even said, two or more gathered together in my name, I'll be there. Even if it's after I've ascended, I'll be there. Christ is present with us. The Spirit is present in us. And all of this has to do with our then being uh, united with him in the Spirit. Here, here is the, the $64 million question. And I'm going to ask it in a kind of stilted way. By what means are we united to Christ? What is the instrument by which we're united? Baptism. Okay, suss that out. Uh, I don't know. I feel like it's not just baptism by water, but I think that word is important. Okay. I agree with both of those things, but, but both of those, as far as I read the scriptures, are kind of subsequent to being united to Christ. By what means are we united to Christ? So like if, if it's a lock, the, the, the seal of the spirit and the physical manifestation of that in baptism are inside the room. But what's the key that turns the lock so, so they can enter the room? Faith. Faith. Yes, Absolutely. Faith. Uh, Ephesians, you still open to Ephesians there, Alex? 3.17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts with faith, that you be rooted and grounded in love. (laughs) (laughs) They have the strength to comprehend with all the saints that is the breadth and the length height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So we say, how do you enter the room? To use my tortured analogy, what is the instrument? What is the means by which uh, we are united? Faith. Faith comes by hearing, it comes not of ourselves. Remember Ephesians 2, 8, and 9? Every, every good VBS kid memorizes that one. But it's by grace you've been saved through faith, not of works. Um, and then uh, it is not of our own will. John 1, 13. We talked about that a little bit last week. Uh, not of the will of man, but of the will of God. And it is by the Spirit's working within us. Therefore, called the spirit of faith. I wonder if another reason, thinking about your analogy, that people don't tend to um, latch on to the biblical idea of election is that there's so much culturally where you find the key in yourself. Oh, you had it all along. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Instead of being given it, like there, you never, you rarely see. Sometimes maybe in fantasy stuff, you'll see some person giving somebody else 
the key to something mm -hmm. or the, the, the answer to a question. Or, but usually right. it's from when you're little, the stories you hear are, you have it all along. I'm totally going to write a children's book where at the end, the, the uh, protagonist is like, oh, and I had the broken law and deceitful nature inside of my heart all along. <laughs> because that's what you carry. From the Wizard of Oz on. Uh-huh, yeah, you had it all, yeah, yeah. Interesting. That's, that's very astute. Um, so the Spirit works in us faith. Look at 2 Corinthians 4.13. I'll just read it. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believe, so I spoke. We also believe, and so also speak. He is, and again, this is going to be confessional language, a little stilted. He, the Spirit, is the principal and efficient cause of it. The Spirit of faith. And so if you want to say, I'm so thankful for my faith, be thankful that God granted it to you and joined you up to him in the spirit. Nothing, nothing less will work. Paul called it the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. That's from Ephesians 1. So the same power then brings us back from the dead spiritually and will ultimately bring us back at the day of resurrection. My question is, when we see spirit, like little s spirit, does that normally mean like an actor, like a thing that's, that's acting, or is it like the uh, essence of? Yeah, that's an interesting word. Um, it's one of those where in the Hebrew and Greek, the Ruach and, and Numa have almost identical uh, semantic domains, which is really rare um, because the New Testament writers kind of just pick up, continue on with the notion from the Old Testament. And so it can mean anything from, you know, kind of that which animates a being, you know, like the spirit uh, is inside the body and, you know, the breath. It means breath, wind, spirit. Um, it can mean kind of the spirit of the age, right? Like, oh, there's a real spirit of optimism in here. It can mean um, a, a spirit. Like, it, there are evil spirits. They test the spirits. There are good spirits. Uh, and it can mean, capital S, the Holy Spirit. So context is going to determine. And sometimes you'll even find where different Bible translators have clearly disagreed on which of those possible definitions and probably some others is, is intended. Um, so yeah, it would depend, I guess, on, on the text itself, which, which we're talking about. Um, I, I tend to think that once we get into the epistles in the New Testament, it is rare to see spirit, unless it's super clear from the flow of the argument, used in a way that's not the Holy Spirit. Um, that Because now... We've established the, the centrality of the Holy Spirit uh, to, to our coming to faith. So we're united to Christ uh, by the power that brought Christ back from the dead. Again, I, I love that line in uh, Christ is risen, he's risen indeed. The power that saved us, or the, the power that saves him from the grave now works in us to powerfully save. That same uh, uh, power, that same person of the Trinity, that same unstoppable God is at work in us. I, I watched, um, there's a corny thing on Netflix called AD. Have you ever heard of this? It's a TV show. It was the follow-up to, uh, maybe the, I think it was the follow-up to the Bible. And uh, it was made by like the guy who made Survivor and stuff. Like him and his wife found Jesus and started making this stuff. Uh, and AD starts with the resurrection. Uh, actually, it starts with the crucifixion. And it goes through kind of the book of Acts. And I thought, it'd be kind of fun to watch this after I've preached on it so I don't uh, have the wrong images in my mind. as I'm, and, and I'm like, this is going to be so corny, but I'll give it a shot. And I got like crazy just chills and was super moved by it um, because they don't show too much. They don't have the ability. Um, but they, the, the guards are all standing outside the grave. And there's like a... Uh, a meteor coming down, like burning through the sky, like, and they all kind of stand up and look, and then it lands, and there's this angel, and it's, it's just this side of cheesy. It's a guy, huge guy with a sword, and he moves the, 
um, stone and they show the, the light kind of bursting forth from the grave and then they cut to another scene. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm standing. I was sitting a second ago. Like it, was, it was really good. I, the whole thing is that good. I would recommend checking it out. Um, but, you know, th- that power that's just so drop your jaw, awe-inspiring, cause people to fall down and, and become like dead men is the same power at work in us. And yet, we so often completely neglect the notion of the Spirit being in us, forget that we are, like we said last week, commanded, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, um, that, that the Spirit gives us gifts that we're to exercise, that the Spirit's to give us words to speak in the moment when we need them, all of this stuff. This is, and it's the same Spirit that comes upon Samson, and he's like, well, I've got a jawbone, so you're all dead. And, and I mean, this is, this is powerful stuff. I don't know how seriously we take it that we actually are indwelled with that same spirit. Or if we think of it as kind of a safer iteration, you know, like a new version has been released, Spirit 2.0, we've kind of grinded off the sharp edges and it's, it's, you know, or maybe because now instead of being on one person, the king, and maybe a few others, prophets, the spirit is within all of us that it's diluted and there's not much going on. Uh, but that's not how God works. Being infinite and all-powerful, there's no limit to what the Spirit can and does do through us. Yeah, I think it's easy to believe that God is working through His Spirit really powerfully when you come to faith, especially if you have a time later in life, whether you've just come to faith or you've just kind of like realized, oh my gosh, I really believe all this. Um, but then, yeah, it's harder like day-to-day to think about that. And I think that there's something in me that's more kind of academic and logical. And when we talk about the father and the son and a transaction and a debt that's paid and all this stuff, it it all makes a lot. And when you get into talking about the spirit, you know, it seems like in the words of Lord Business, a bunch of hippy dippy baloney sometimes. I was, in fact, I was challenged by uh, Ed, my, my friend who used to pastor uh, Olivet before he was, uh, before he, he was retired. No, he retired. He chose to retire. Um, that he, he, he talked to all of us as pastors saying, when's the last time you preached on the Holy Spirit and, and why? Why, you know, if it's been a long time, why? If it's been real recently, why? And I was like, man, I, I really need to remember we don't serve a God who is two persons in one essence because the the one person, I think the enemy would have us uh, neglect thinking about and, and knowing as a reality in our everyday life is the one who indwells us and empowers us, um, by which Jesus himself did his miracles. So th- I think it's a really important thing. And, and it goes right back to the very beginning of our becoming his. From the very beginning faith is the instrumental means and faith comes how by the spirits working in us therefore called the spirit of faith so ever since the very beginning he has ushered us into the presence of god by the son right and now indwells us empowers us and we are like "Mm, not so much um i'll take care of what i say i'll come up with clever things I'll take care of what I do. I'll work only from my human strength and ingenuity and skills and ability. And it's almost like having a insane, unlimited, untapped energy resource and instead just keep on burning coal and blackening the sky and having rolling blackouts because there's not enough. You know what I mean? Uh, anyone have any thoughts on this? Uh, is, is, am I the only one? Or is this something you kind of feel and see in the church today as well? In, in at least a large swath of it, and probably the swath that an American Baptist church in the Midwest is firmly in the midst of. Well, I think also, like, um, so if I believe that the Holy Spirit involves me and I believed in that, in that, that moment or, or whatever, um, that power is in me, but then I live the rest of my Christian life under my own power where I'm, if I'm tempted, I feel like I have to do it all within my own power and I'm not relying on God 
or any number of things, like mm -hmm. any difficulty in your life, you feel like you forget that it's not just you. You're not alone. Yeah. I think part of that is because it's like the language of it. It's like the Holy Spirit is in me. It's inside mm -hmm. of me, like controlling me like a marionette or something. It's hard to sometimes remember that when you need to pull it into your forebrain. Mm -hmm. Because we don't understand it. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's mysterious stuff, yeah. so it's sometimes easier to just say, I don't feel like my brain's smoking today, so well, like, later I'll think about that. I came about, what does it mean to be in Jesus? Uh, well, I guess it just means you're so close that it's like you're, you know, in, together, one. But I think, wow, what does that really mean? You know, it's, it's it means that, remember we talked about being a seminal head? Uh, it means that he's our father and therefore... What he's done, we've done in him. So when we were in Adam, he sinned, and we were in him because, in I guess, uh, potential, we are in inside of him, and then that was our father, and now we're in Christ because we have a new father. Uh, so, 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 yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so, yeah, we're not perhaps in Christ the same way the Spirit's in us. I remember spending a lot of time talking about prepositions when I was going through um, confirmation class. What is this in? What is within? Like, what do they mean by this or that or on? Or, you Lutheran know? Church, you were probably like, why in, with, and under? Oh, yeah, we talked a lot about that. Yeah. yeah it, because our English words, you know, you mean certain things, but then do you mean this by this or this by this, you know? Yeah, and there's slightly different yeah. thrusts to in n in Greek. And it seems like when you read scripture, you, you see multiple things. Like, so yeah, we're following mm -hmm. Jesus, but he's also mm -hmm. part of, you know, we're married to Jesus, and we're all, all these different things. All, I think, illustrations to help us kind of get that big feel of, like, what is our relationship with God? And we get hung up on, well, what, what about this particular thing? Mm -hmm. It's supposed to be, a, I think, a bigger picture. I think at the same time when you're like a person of faith, you can see it too. If you don't try too hard, you can see, wow, that person's got a spirit. Really yeah. hardcore right now. You can tell what other people do. <laughs> so you can observe it maybe easier than thinking about it. Yeah. Right, yeah. Well, at Pentecost, they could all see the tongue of fire on someone else's head. Oh, sure. But it was probably... Do I have one? <laughs> what was it? It was uh, a... I don't know if it's a true story or like one of these apocryphal glurge things, but I, uh, I saw recently on someone's Facebook, uh, an Amish man was asked, are you a Christian? And he said, you'll have to ask my neighbor. Uh, and, and maybe it's sort of true of the spirit as well. We can think, oh, I'm super full of the spirit, uh, but that's going to bear fruit if, if he's indwelling us. Uh, and we are filled with him. Well, and I think that a lot of times it's clear that you can't see in your own life when you're working closely with the Spirit because I know that oftentimes when you have the best feedback from people for sermons, you thought it's bomb. And last week I thought I killed it and you know nobody was like, good job, Pastor. Like, Fine. <laughs> yeah, but that's good. It reminds you that, you. and, and it, I mean, again, the spirit opens the heart. Uh, Spurgeon says, I mean, he heard amazing preaching week after week after week after week, not saved. One day, because it was raining heavily, he ducked into a different church, heard what he says is like the worst sermon he's ever heard, and was cut to the quick and wept and, and threw himself into the service of Christ and was born again. I mean, yeah. I mean, and a lot of very polished type preaching is, that says nothing anyway, right? Uh, it it's just kind of reaffirms what your flesh wants to hear. And a lot of times people who have a lot of passion don't have great rhetoric. The, the Spirit is, is at work when the Spirit is at work. And Jesus said, how does this, how does this happen? It, to Nicodemus, what was his description? It's just like the wind. You, you know it, it blows. You can't see where it's coming from. You can't see where it's going. You feel it when it's here. And you're like, oh, there's wind. I, I can know that. Other than that, it's a mystery. And, and of course, the word spirit also means wind. Uh, so it's an, an apt uh, illustration. So I, and maybe that also is why we, as very Western people, 
tend to back away. I want to ask one more, uh, we'll get to that in a second, Roger, I want, but I want to ask one more question. Is it possible that we back away from this because of the excesses of people that we know or have encountered who are very, very all about the Spirit? Uh, for example, the Toronto Blessing or one of these things. Uh, videos you've seen of people in churches barking like dogs or hysterically laughing and saying it's the Holy Spirit that's making this happen. Um, traditions where things like uh, slaying in the Spirit and all this stuff that's not found in Scripture has taken the place of the actual means of grace and, and sacraments that, that have been part of the faith once for all handed down to the saints. Do we look at that and go, uh, I need to take five giant steps in this direction away from that so I don't fall into that error, so I'm not associated with that? I don't know if I've ever consciously thought that, but I'm sure subconsciously that's part of it. Okay. I mean, I grew up in a very, you know, ordered house, and you just come from people who are not really emotive, then when you see that, a lot of times you think, that feels put on. Here's the thing, though, Aaron. You inherited that reaction through Lutheranism. Uh, because one of Luther's biggest gripes was the enthusiasts. Uh, enthusiast literally means spirit in you. So he's, he's the, those who were uh, kind of wonky about saying, look at how we manifest the spirit, and there was chaos. Luther condemned that, and the Lutheran liturgy is very, I mean, just listen to Garrison Keillor a little bit, very staid, very formal. Um, not to say there's not true teaching about the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Spirit isn't present in those settings, certainly that's not what I'm saying. But so you've kind of inherited that yeah. overreaction, I think, maybe. I think too that like the experience of being in church growing up was there, I think that there were definitely lots of times when I felt the Spirit there, but it was a lot quieter than a lot of those things that you just described. I mean, it wasn't, you know, nobody was in the aisles, nobody was, everybody was seated. Mm -hmm. but you can still experience the Spirit in a quieter way. Yeah, and, and remember, I mean, the Spirit, God, God was not in the fire. God was not in the earthquake. God was not in any of this huge stuff. He was in the still, small voice. So certainly, we don't want to discount that as being the Holy Spirit uh, either. That's, that's certainly true. Yeah? Could this be one of those tensions that we, we keep talking about? Whether you overemphasize or underemphasize the Spirit? Could that be a one of those tensions that we Sure, yeah, and I mean, there is a tension there, I think, of the Spirit shines the light on uh, Christ uh, through his ministry and in, in his role in our salvation, and yet we say in our Nicene Creed, all Christians everywhere affirm, with the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified, you know, he's rightly worshipped, so we worship a triune God. Uh, what about when you sing songs that are uh, directed toward the Holy Spirit. Does that strike you as, as strange? That's always the verse that's skipped. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what about a song that's not multiple verses about multiple persons of the Trinity, but uh, primarily about the Holy Spirit or addressed to? The, the one, uh, surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. Mm -hmm. You know, if you look around, you, you actually see the presence. You can see the people believe that and and just take it on in their presence like it's not a ton of fire but you know it's fun mm -hmm. okay what about like uh holy spirit you are welcome here it's a song we've sang a few times i have heard podcasters who, whose job it is um to tear everything down that they don't agree with a job given to them by them uh, have a field day with songs like that and that particular song. Like, you don't need to sing to the Holy Spirit. Praise Jesus with the kind of unction and oomph of the Holy Spirit. Who are they to sing whether it's right or wrong? You'd have to have chapter and verse, right? I have a question. Well, I, I had a question, though, so I'm just waiting to see if there's any other answers to it. Everyone's like, well, now I know Roger has a question, so I don't. I would say that definitely, like when we first sang that, I was, I didn't necessarily love it immediately, but it's a good reminder that that something's happening in church. It's not just a bunch of people in a room listening. Like, 
God's there. And there's a few songs like that. Well, here we are, here I am to worship that one. You know, the sort of songs that set a tone for the beginning of worship. And that's the Holy Spirit one is kind of one of those, I think, where you, you're remembering that it's not just, oh, you know, lunch is going to happen soon and you want to focus. I mean, that's a factor, but... The Holy Spirit actually is, is the one who kind of reminds people that lunch is coming up and they're supposed to jingle their keys. <laughs> Roger, what were you going to say? Is it just me or is it we can't get to a single question in the catechism without into a I don't think it's just you. Yeah, no, good theology is always going to contain tensions, certainly. Uh, and, and that's because God is beyond our ability to comprehend completely. He's, if I had a God that I fully understood, I was like, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense. I got it. Got it all figured out. I can jot it out in a few pages. Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. You'd, be, you'd have a God that, that was a reflection of you. How else would you understand so exhaustively this God unless, and you probably don't even understand yourself as well as people think they, they often understand God. Uh, there, so yeah, I think that the, the mystery aspect, the fact that the spirit um, is not uh, as well, no. Let me let me say this: the fact that the spirit is more active in ways that are harder for us to identify and analyze in our lives. I mean, you know what Christ is doing for you right now. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father, making intercession. You know what He'll do next. He's going to come back, and He's going to. Right, every wrong. He's gonna. He's going. We we know what he's. We know what. So so we can say, okay, that's predictable. The spirit, though, and I think this is where we miss the the beauty of it is with us through the unpredictability of our lives, and so it's good that it's uh, not a three step process. This is what the Holy Spirit always does. The Holy Spirit is indwelling us and empowering us to deal with, and we see this throughout the Book of Acts as we've been studying it. Wherever they go, the Spirit is at work. And Paul doesn't know what he's going to encounter. Timothy doesn't know what they're going to encounter. The Spirit does and gives them what they need to deal with each and every uh, obstacle. All right, if that's all we're going to say about that, then... Oh, yes, sir. What was that first verse in Romans? Romans 10, 17. That was the first one I wrote down. Oh, the very first one from Romans? I don't know. What was it? Uh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. The Spirit uniting us to Christ. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Let me read the answer again. The Spirit applies to us the redemption purchased by Christ by working faith in us and by it uniting us to Christ in our effectual calling. And there is a proof text there as well from Ephesians 3. It being faith. Yeah, so it works faith in us, which then in turn unites us to Christ in our effectual calling. So who were we united to before this happened? Aaron's father is the devil. We, we, we covered this pretty, pretty extensively for a couple weeks. Before you were in Christ, you were in yeah. Adam. Yeah, you were, you were united to Adam before. Romans 5, 12 through 19. Um, covenant of works, covenant of grace. This is stuff that we talked about pretty extensively. And now, thank God, you are united by faith, which is worked in you by the Spirit with Christ. Uh, this, to me, is the kindest, most merciful thing any God could do. It's the reason to thank him and praise him and get out of bed in the morning. Some people see it as very distasteful uh, and use distasteful language to describe it. Uh, Hank Hanegraaff, anybody heard of him? The Bible Answer Man. Now, this is outdated stuff because he is now Eastern Orthodox, uh, which is what was, no one saw that coming. That was a very interesting turn of events. Um, he's written some books that I actually like quite a bit, and he's, he's a thoughtful guy. He's had a radio show where people call in and ask questions about the Bible for years and years. But he would continually rail against the doctrines of grace by saying that they make God out to be, quote, a cosmic rapist, 
forcing his love upon people. First of all, ew, find better language. Um, but what is wrong apart from the just grossness of the statement with the spirit behind it in, in describing God as being this very pushy, like half-drunk frat boy who won't take no for an answer? Well, that's not love. Yes, exactly. What, what kind of love is modeled by our God? Starts with A, starts with Alpha. Agape love, right? This is the, a, a word for love that was kind of obscure, and the Christians baptized it and revived it and said this will be essentially our word for the kind of self-giving love that Christ showed us, that Christ used uh, to save us in his coming down and bearing our sins and dying on a tree. Agape love is not ever unwanted, oh, get off of me. Okay, this is, this is the kind of self-giving love that always says, I will even die for you. And it's blasphemy to me to, to equate these two things. I don't know if he anymore gets on these tirades because now he's on these things about his new Eastern Orthodoxy. Uh, but, and, and he's kind of defending his rep all the time. But there are many people who, whether or not they say that, that's kind of how they're tempted to view the notion that God came down in, in the person of Christ and reached out to us while we were yet sinners. Not with, hey, you want this? Because if we look in our hearts to answer that question, the answer is always, no, and I'm going to nail you to a cross. Rather, he came to say, I'm going to set you free from your sin, grant you faith, grant you repentance. And now you guys even need to hear the sermon this morning, but I assume you'll stay anyway. So there's, to, to suggest that God would be guilty of this sort of thing draws a, a false disjunction, so it's illogical. I mean, if I initiate love, it's beautiful. If we're watching, you know, the movies where there's two teenagers and one of them's got like oxygen tubes and one of them initiates love, it makes us cry because we're so happy. But if God, who is omnipotent, initiates love, it's hideous. How, how does that work? Aaron and I love each other, but I totally initiated it. <laughs> All right? If you watch a teen movie, the most beautiful girl in school, everyone loves her. Someone chooses her. Right? Is that gross now? Yeah. Or, or the most beautiful girl in school, but nobody knows because she has glasses and a ponytail. And then later on, somebody chooses her for what's inside, and she's like, surprise, I'm hot. Right? But... <laughs> The fact is that all love is initiated by someone. And the love of God, who is eternal, was upon us from before the foundation of the earth. It couldn't be any other way because he's internal, eternal and omnipotent. And it's great news that he has chosen to place his love upon us rather than to just leave us in our sins. Roger. Um, I was thinking maybe the... Um um, spirit doesn't just unite us with Christ, but the Spirit also unites us with each other. Right, yeah, we, we mentioned us being uh, a body and, and Christ being the head. Yeah, certainly that's the, that's the case. Uh, as far as Hanegraaff's charge, what would be your answer if someone said, that makes God sound like someone who's very creepy and aggressive and... If that's how God is, I want nothing to do with him. Think about the uh, prodigal son. He was free to leave, and he did. Mm -hmm. Okay. So in life, is there some aspect where we are allowed to reject the gift that's given to us? Right, we're, we're essentially guaranteed to reject it because our hearts are, are hardened... And because Romans 1, uh, we are, our hearts are deceitful. And so we're always going to want to do what the prodigal son did, which is give me my inheritance. I'm going to go make my own life, make my own way, be my own. And what happens when he's eating the pig pods? He comes to himself. A picture for us of what the Holy Spirit does in opening the eyes of the blind spirit, in unshackling us from our sin. You're free, you have free will as a sinner before you come to Christ to do and choose whatever you want. It's just that 
because your heart is deceitful above all and desperately wicked, what you'll want, I can predict 10 times out of 10, is going to be something on some level sinful and self-serving and, and, and self-glorifying rather than penitent and uh, God-glorifying. I think with somebody who had that argument, I would want to reframe it to a different analogy. Like, because you had mentioned, you know, being freed from bondage, being freed from slavery, um, that kind of love wouldn't be rejected. Nobody would be like, no, thanks. Yeah. Fine. Yeah. I'm going to free you from this creepy much. I didn't ask you to free me yeah, from this. I think that you have to, you have to recognize the state, like the actual state that you're in before you're saved, mm -hmm. before you're going to think of it as something that you want. We all think we're the prettiest girl at the, at the dance, uh, and, and God's lucky that we chose him. Right. When in reality, like Roger reminded us, we're Gomer, right? We're, or we're the, the, that picture we read of, in Amos, the, the, the baby abandoned and, and kind of retching and dying. That Elijah. Elijah's not a book of the Bible. Um, so if, if this is good news, we have to remember God could simply have honored our decision, which we already made in Adam, and then we reaffirmed with all of our sins in our lives, and we would all go into a Christless eternity, and no one could be charged with any wrongdoing, much less God, only us. Um, I, I remember hearing that, that uh, and I don't think this is true, I think this comes from somewhere else, but it was attributed to D.L. Moody. He said, you know, I, I do believe in election. The election is... God has cast one vote for your soul. The devil has cast one vote for your soul. And you get the deciding vote. And there is the, the uh, election. And we'll see with each person how the outcome is. And then the Russians interfere and everything. It's a big mess. But what, what, what is wrong with that view? Well, it's a different use of the term election. <laughs> right. He's being clever on purpose by purposely equivocating. What's wrong with the view apart from the clever turn of phrase? You've already cast your vote, and it's always going to be for... You cast your vote in Adam. Yeah, and you chose your father, the devil. You chose Adam. You chose sin. You cast your vote again as soon as you had the core strength to actually carry out sins. As soon as you were old enough to reject the evil and choose the good, you rejected the good and chose the evil. We all know that we all did it. And beyond that, if it was I who chose uh, God with the deciding vote and everyone, you know, we had the victory party and I got up and gave the acceptance speech and everything, who gets the glory for that? Who then actually saved me? Yeah, Christ was very central and involved because he made the payment, but I did the thing that separates me from my unbelieving brothers and sisters. There's something special inside me that made me go that extra mile, that made me make the right choice. I get the glory, at least some percentage of it. And if that's the case, it's not grace. If it's even 1%, my works, my will, it's not all of grace. Does that make sense? In fact, somebody flip over to Ephesians if you would, and we'll, oh, it's time to go. Somebody real quick flip to Ephesians and read uh, 2, 4 through 7, especially with uh, a view to 5. This is what leads up to that famous Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For you are saved by grace through faith, not of yourself, for it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. 4 through what? 2, 4 through 7. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That kind of says it all, doesn't it? We're going to unpack that for a few weeks, and, and about 15 times in the course of that we would be moved to just absolute awe at how at the riches of the mercy of our God, that he, while we were dead in our sins, while we were yet his enemies, said, I won't just come and offer an olive branch and say, look, let's start over, guys. I created you and I wanted to have a better relationship than this. But no, I'll come and allow you to kill me. And then I'll rise again. Wow. 
that is some kind of savior we have. And the way that that payment is applied to us is by the working of faith in us by the Holy Spirit uh, and faith uniting us to Christ in our effectual calling. We'll talk more about that term effectual calling next week. So certainly don't miss because that's everybody's bag, right? Effectual calling. Uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the, the great, greatness of the riches of your mercy. We are so humbled that you, while we were yet sinners, while we were yet prodigals, while we were running away from you and simultaneously cursing your name, would come and become a curse by being hung on a tree. It would be, while you were sinless, become sin and, and despised and rejected and even your father turning his face away. Lord, we thank you so much that you would endure that for us. Uh, we pray that you would remind us day by day that we are not our own. We were bought with a price, that we uh, were, were brought to your throne of grace by the working of the Spirit in us, and that we by faith are united to you. What, what good news. And Lord, we pray that we would not live as if we are united still to Adam or are somehow free agents on our own, but Lord, would live lives of people who have been, by a work of the Spirit, united once again to our God. In your holy name we pray. Amen.